0: Hey, I'm Stephen Scott from Big Mouth Audio. Welcome to the Creative Leaders Podcast. Liam, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, Stephen. Thank you so much. Glad to be here.
0: No problem at all. It's our pleasure to have you. So, Liam, We're going to start off by asking you to tell us your origin story. How did you get into the games industry? Where did the passion for games start? And ultimately what led to your position as head of production at Raw Fury games? I
1: love the phrase origin story. Now I feel like I need to make up something especially nefarious. You know, it was a rainy day, but, (laughs) but no, I, I was lucky enough to know at a pretty early age that I wanted to make games. Uh, I sort of had um a lot of access to to video games in general had a computer as as early as I can remember and uh, started messing around with building simple little games and mods of my own. I think Warcraft 3 is is probably the game in particular that very much drew me in and then had me creating my own things. And so um I had this particular memory I was I was making this um this map for Warcraft 3 and I spent a few months on it. And I kept testing it with this one friend of mine, his name's Nico. And Nico, if, if you don't know him, which you may not, he uh, he's the best tester you'll ever find because he's going to tell you immediately if he hates something or if he loves something. So I'd be spending weeks building something. He'd come in five minutes in. he goes, oh, that's kind of boring. And you know, you'd want to cry for a bit, but at the same time, it's, it's good to get that feedback that, that you instantly know if you need to change the direction or not, at least to keep him happy. So I was working on this particular map for for Warcraft 3 for for quite a bit. and We were playing it a bunch. And at some point, I kind of lost interest in continuing to update it. I just kind of moved on to other things. And he calls me up one day and he just goes, you know, let's uh, let's play your map. And this is the first time that he was ever the guy suggesting to me that we play my thing. I I always used to be the one convincing him, like, "Let's, let's try out this new thing I'm building. And I always figured he was doing me a favor. And this was just around the time that I think Left 4 Dead 1 had just come out. And and he's calling me up to ask, do you want to play your map? You know, my no-budget thing that I'm making in my spare time. And and that kind of stuck with me. You know, that feeling that somebody would choose to play the thing I created over all of these AAA products that we have access to. And and I asked him, I'm like, why don't you want to play something else? And he just said, well, it's fun. And that was it. And it was one of those moments that I think stuck with me as like, I'm still chasing that feeling to this day, I think, you know, just being involved in something that makes someone else go, this is what I want to spend my spare time on. Uh, there's something addictive about that. Um, I also had access to, to great education. I, I grew up in, uh, in Stockholm, Sweden, and um, there's a couple of games educations that started to, to kind of come online when I was in my late teens. And so I applied to a, a game design course because I figured that's kind of the thing you're supposed to be doing. If you're not a great artist or programmer, you're supposed to be a designer, right? Like, it was kind of all I knew, and uh, so I went and I studied and and got to learn a lot about what it what it really takes to bring a game from an idea to collaborating with other people and bringing it to a release. Um, we had this one game which during our summer holiday, the education sort of the, the principal or whoever reached out and just asked us, "Hey, do you, do you guys want to release this as an actual game? Like, do you want to put it out on the store?" And we'd never considered what that process looked like so we would built it for the um, you know the old sony psp like the handhelds and um we just kind of took a few months over the holidays and we went through the the actual certification process got it submitted to sony and they tested it on their end they approved it and, and it's something that you could actually buy as like a little playstation mini it was called back then and um, that entire process really turned me on to what quality assurance is all about and what production is all about. And so later in the education, we started doing these internships and it was like a six month thing, you know, go to a studio, learn about what the actual job is. And the hope is you get to stick around. And so I, uh, I did an internship in uh, quality assurance at a company called uh, Fatshark fat shark, which is here in Stockholm. And, um, just kind of came in at the perfect time at the company because they were looking to start ramping up. And, and I became um, fortunate enough to have the chance to build up a QA team there. You know, I was given the, the QA manager job, which for, for a 20 year old who, who has no experience leading teams, it was a pretty cool opportunity to be given. But also, you know, a big challenge in learning how to hire people and, and train people up and build processes and all of that. But um, that's kind of how I, I started off my my official career. Um And then from there, I I fell into production a little bit by accident. It just turned out, you know, there was a lot of times doing QA where I would be asking other people questions. When are we shipping this thing? You know, when are we uh, locking the content in terms of we can't make any more changes, we need to be focused on the polish. And in the end, people just kind of started asking me instead. So it was very much accidental. There was a void in the team at the time that needed someone who was coordinating these things. And so by the time we shipped, I just kind of, fallen into that role of, of doing both QA and production. And from there, I've, I've just um, started focusing more on being a producer, uh, worked on a number of games there during Fat Shark, moved on to Raw Fury, which is an indie publisher, and um, got to see the other side of, of development. You know, if, if you're in a studio, you're working on a game at a time, you have a lot of easy access to, to the team. On the publishing side, you get to work with a number of different teams, potentially all over the place, uh, but but it's a very different focus. So I've gotten to see both those sides and, and then more recently moved on to a head of production role within Raw Fury. And... Um, Instead of working more directly on the games, I get to work with, with a team of producers and release managers and so on and just kind of oversee and direct and make sure that um, everyone has what they need to be successful, which has been a super cool challenge and um, and something I recommend if, if you're into that. <laughs> so that that's the short origin story. I don't have a superhero name just yet, but if you have any suggestions, glad to take them.
0: Okay, well. Maybe we'll put that one out to the audience then, uh, via a Spotify poll or, uh, or le- leave a comment uh, if anyone thinks of a, a superhero name for Liam, uh, please do let us know. Um, okay, so tell us a little bit more about your actual role as head of production. What does what does a head of production at a games publisher actually do? You know, what walk us through a typical day in your role,
1: right? I, I mean, in essence, head of production, you are looking at the um, at least in my case, and, and you know this is defined a little bit different studio to studio, publisher to publisher, etc. But in my case, the role was was sort of largely defined as overseeing the entire portfolio and making sure that there's a clear sense of direction for the games and an understanding of the status of them. Right. So, if um, if the sales department needs to understand when a game is releasing or, or kind of what state it's in currently, they can go to me and we can talk about that. If the um, the finance department needs to understand similar things or if they need to understand which projects may be at risk, for example, we can talk about that. So it's a lot of keeping the different departments aligned on uh, the departments aligned on, on sort of where the status is for the games. But it's also... Bit of the business perspective and overseeing the uh, the sort of P and L for the games, the profits and losses, you know, the expected revenue for a title, and so on, so that you can run a successful business, right? So, so there's a little bit of an overlap there, but in essence, on the production side, it's it's a lot of um, managing the team and and spending time, being the person that people can come to for support. Uh, helping to make sure that we're answering the right questions for our games and asking the right ones as well, uh, putting the right processes into place in terms of you know how do we take a game from signing it to sunsetting it basically, and then what are the steps along the way? So Raw Fury was was interesting because um, when I joined the company there was nine of us, and today Raw Fury is a little over a hundred people. So there's been a lot of growth. And um, in the early days we had a very flat structure. We, um, we didn't have managers you know everyone was just kind of working the way they they felt was best and we spent a lot of time talking and then discussing things rather than uh, really finding a consistent process and then as you grow people started kind of crying out for a bit more structure and, and a bit more guidance and things as you can imagine and so a large part of the role is, has just been about finding that consistency and making sure people are speaking the same language as well so if um, if you can imagine building a just a milestone schedule for a game I mean, I've seen everything from a set of clumsy sticky notes to a super detailed Gantt chart with every task you can imagine. I mean, milestone schedules and roadmaps in general, they're all over the place in terms of how you want to approach them. And so I kind of figured together with the team that maybe it's good we approach this consistently and then we're always trying to do the same thing the same way rather than reinventing the wheel every single time. So you know, getting the chance to take a step back from individual productions and instead looking at how we do this job uh, as a team is is really, I think, the um, the main focus of the role for me.
0: Hmm. And it, you must have picked up a lot of specific leadership skills throughout that journey. You know, it sounds like you've had the, I guess, the rare opportunity to actually. Come in right at the start, you know. For small company, as you say, everybody was kind of doing their own thing until it gets to that point where it's kind of crying out for for some leadership. Um, what would you say? What are those key leadership skills that you have picked up um, that are so important uh, when leading teams in in the games industry?
1: Hmm, it's a really good question. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of different leadership styles. And I think at the end of the day, you, you need to find the style that, that works for you as a leader. But I think there are a couple of things that just kind of go back to values that, that are important to me. And um, I've sort of learned over time, you know, w- when I wanted to be a designer, I, I came in, you know, 17-year-old annoying kid wanting to, to be in control of my games, right? And it was an ego thing. Like, I, I knew how I wanted my games to be. And then I figured people were going to follow that vision. And what I realized pretty quickly is if you want to collaborate with other people... As a matter of fact, you need to listen to their opinions. <laughs> you need to actually discuss and work as a team. And so, uh, I learned those things pretty early on. I'd like to think, and and leaving your ego outside the door, I think, is is a fundamental for for finding success in, in a collaborative environment. It's just the way it is. You know, if you can actually listen to other people properly and consider perspectives, you're gonna find the best ideas, and you're gonna find the direction that is um, is is most sensible for your project. Now there's a very big difference between listening to perspectives and having discussions and never making a decision, right? Because there's a challenge there in terms of uh, democratizing every process or or always voting on everything. I don't think that works, but I think a good leader is someone who knows how to distill down perspective and uh, make a healthy decision as a result of that. Uh, I think if you're able to to sort of do that without your ego getting in the way, then you're going to find a lot more success. And and I, I find that being sort of kind but firm with your team lends itself really nicely to, to an environment where people feel like it's okay to fail. It's okay to have discussions. It's okay to ask stupid questions. Like you really want an environment like that. But ultimately as a leader, you need to acknowledge that um, you're accountable for the success of the team and you need to be able to, to kind of ensure that everyone has what they need to get there or that they feel comfortable talking to you when they're not sure where they're headed. So, so I, I like to think about it in that manner. And, and of course, um, like I said before, such a big part as well of, of leadership is, is about direction and making sure that your team knows where it's headed. So um, I think you've got visionary leaders that people just naturally choose to follow who might be terrible at structure. And it's a, it's something that you know producers in general as a leadership role, some producers have that in their skill set where they're the most structured person you've ever met, but they couldn't hold a presentation to save their lives and vice versa, right? You'll have someone who's amazingly well-spoken, but their PowerPoint is always ugly. and And so the point there is figuring out what kind of leader you are and then finding the people around you who you need to activate for their skills to help complement you if you think that you're the answer to everything and, and you're trying to do it all, I, I just don't think you're going to be as successful as you could be if you had a perfect so number two or, or just a group of people around you who um who can follow that direction that you've set.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. that That makes perfect sense. Making it all about communication and values. And I love that approach of effectively, you know, f- finding the approach that works for you, communicating that. And then I guess really just, trusting the process from there.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And being honest with yourself as well and, and, and knowing your shortcomings. And, and you know what, like it turns out treating people well is, is actually a, a pretty beneficial thing. You know, who'd have thought. So, <laughs> right. so that's, uh, that's always something I'd recommend.
0: Give it a try. <laughs> Give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I love asking this next question. Um, how do you balance creativity and practicality in your position so if you're onboarding a new game starting a new project how do you kind of balance those creative endeavors versus the more practical business goals um you know budgets timelines etc i imagine when you're working with a developer they'll be more focused on the creative side of things and they'll want to just you know effectively do more and more that. whereas as head of production i guess you're right in the middle of you know making something that's creatively brilliant but also you know you have to uh, you know, f- f- stick within budget and, and and get it done on time it's a
1: real challenge honestly and and it's something that i think any publisher is going to spend a lot of time discussing this because um, actually, as a publisher, you're you're making bets with every project that you sign, and, and you're hoping that that some of them are going to find success. And ultimately, not all of them will be will be the biggest success. But, but you're trying to um, you're trying to find that that formula. And I think there's two things I would say in particular, because I don't have the answer to this question at the end of the day. You know, I don't know what it is that makes a game successful. And I think anyone who who thinks they've cracked the formula will be disappointed in five years when the market trends have completely shifted and so on. And so it's an eternal game, you know. Um, but I think there's two things that, that I keep coming back to. The first one is the dynamic between the creative side of your team and and the business side of your team. And if we just distill that down within sort of design and production, I like to think that the designer's job is to say yes. And the producer's job is to say no. And what I mean by that is somebody has to be the person who is pushing for innovation and pushing us as a team to do a little bit more and take risks and, and in essence, try and do something that hasn't been done before so that we have a unique position in the market. Because if you're releasing the same game over and over again, your audience is going to lose interest. So you need the person who's going to be pushing those limits, and I think that's really important, and that comes from creative. And from the production side, sort of representing the the business perspective, the, the budget of the team, and even things like trying to ensure an environment where people aren't being, uh, you know, crunching to death just because there was an unclear plan and, and direction. You know, the, the producer is the one that's reducing the ambiguity. And in essence, they're the one who needs to pull the brake when um, when things aren't looking feasible. So if the producer is the one saying no, really what I mean there as well is it's the person who has to look at what is possible and challenge design and kind of give them that, that set of constraints to work within so that you can find success in between each other. Uh, so I think it's a really difficult thing. You know, some people have talked about being um, within the games industry, a creative producer, which is a mixed role between design and production. I think it's a really challenging role to have because you have to say no to yourself. Right? Like here's all these cool ideas that you have for features and, and mechanics. And then ultimately you're like, can we do it? Yeah, we have to, because they're my ideas and they're amazing. Right. <laughs> but if you have someone else on the other side, who's able to kind of look at the, the full picture and the schedule and then go and um, and source the estimates and, and do a risk analysis and all these kind of things that a good producer can offer you, well, then you're in a better dynamic. So I think that's one thing. Um, and I think to follow that, you know, why are people drawn to games? And not just as a like as a form of entertainment, but um, what is the thing that might make a game stick out? I think you've got again two fundamentals. You've got technical innovation, which is the games that are doing something in terms of maybe visual fidelity. You know, they they look better than anything else, or they might be pushing. Um, let's say how many players can be on the same server at the same time. You know, We've had a bunch of games like that, a first-person shooter that has 512 players, and you go, whoa, that's crazy, we've never seen that. And, and once in a while a game comes along and it kind of offers something technically exciting. Uh, the, the advent of, of VR is, is honestly another good example where the tech comes in and the games that follow are doing something that no other experience has ever done. So when you play Half-Life Alyx or, or any other VR game, you're getting something you, you haven't got from another game. And so a good game manages to get at least one of these rights. And and the thing about sort of design innovation is that that's where it's all about having a game that is different, but not necessarily technically advanced. So if you're playing, let's say Vampire Survivors, you're probably not playing it because it's the best looking game on the market. And I mean, no offense to Vampire Survivors, it's a really cool game, but I mean, the graphics are not the reason you're gonna play it. And, and the technical innovation is not the reason you're playing it. You're playing it because it feels amazing to play and because the design is doing something that you haven't really experienced before, which is why a, a million developers are now making vampire survivors like games, right? It's, it's You follow that trend. Um, and that's not, by the way, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean... You can follow innovation. You can you can find different flavors of innovation as well. And and some developers have, have made a career out of taking a formula that already works and polishing it and perfecting it. And that's okay, you know. But um, but I think between kind of technical innovation and design innovation is where you're going to find a, a a fantastic game. And and honestly, if you can build a, a fantastic game, then there's another level of this discussion, which is will the audience find the game just because you made a great game. And that one is harder to answer because there are some very polarizing opinions there, as you can imagine. I mean, some people will say that, yes, that's all it takes. Make a great game and, and the market's going to gonna find it and they're going to be interested in it. But I think, I said I was going to say two things. I'm going to say a third thing as well, and then I promise I'm done. The third thing is, is there an audience for the thing you're building? And um. If we look at kind of design innovation, technical innovation, one of the genres I'm going to single out is is platformers. So Super Mario Brothers, you know, platformer game, the coolest thing that, that ever hit the market in its in its heyday, and still a franchise today that is is you know, beloved and popular and all of that. But if you think about the amount of platformers that are being released every week, there's quite a lot. And if you think about how many are successful. They are few and far between. And it's because the market is satiated for that. They've got enough really, really good platformers to keep them busy for a long time. And they're looking for, for new spaces and new genres that are doing something that, that this one isn't really doing anymore. And once in a while, something comes along and, and it does innovate. You know, there's a, there's a couple platformers every year that come out and they do something we haven't seen before. And people go, oh, interesting, okay. This is a familiar space, but it's doing something new. And then you got to wonder, Yeah, sure, there, there's probably an audience for it. And you'll have the discussion about how maybe it hits the nostalgia of people who grew up playing platformers and so on. But really, looking critically at how big is that market segment—that's how you make a good business case for this. You know, like looking at the most successful games within this genre. Are they selling tens of thousands of units or are they selling millions of units? And, and so you need to kind of answer that question as well within this formula. It's not enough to just make a phenomenal game that innovates technically and uh, design-wise if that game is within a space that nobody's interested in anymore. So those are all the kinds of things we would look at it within, um, within this question. And, and I mean... It'll keep us busy for, for years, that conversation.
0: And, and it's always changing, yeah. right? Yeah, and I guess, you know, it always moves in cycles, doesn't it? So you, you make an interesting point there. So if you get one of those things right, or a couple of those things right, how does the audience then actually find the game? Um, you know, what what marketing strategies do you find to be particularly effective? I guess, you know, specifically on Raw Fury titles?
1: I think a lot of people, especially over sort of the last um, decade, have, have obviously leaned a lot on, on influencers and on getting your game out to players. And I think that's still the, the area that seems to be most successful. Uh, I think we've seen a big shift in terms of how events function, where physical events, at least to me, and, and especially for, for indie titles, it's hard to get attention there. It's something you're going to struggle with you know bringing your your game to to gamescom and having a physical booth. I mean there's there's a lot of value in that in terms of building your brand and in terms of uh, you know getting to connect directly with your players and, and so on. But um, as far as what does it do for for the sales metric, probably not a ton. Whereas getting into a Steam digital event like their, their regular Nextfests or the the other kind of events that come in between, they tend to move the needle a bit more in terms of wish lists. And that's wish lists is, is like that's that's the word that people have been focused on for, for the last couple of years when it comes to Steam in particular. Your your wish list number, meaning the amount of people that actually went into the store page and clicked, tell me when this comes out because I'm interested, right? Add it to your wish list. That's the only real metric that you have to rely on in terms of how's your game going to do. So any activity that's going to raise your wish list is going to be something that's worth your time and, and your effort. Um, so what that also means is that any kind of marketing activity that has close proximity to the user being able to click add to wish list is going to help. So if, if you're making a um, if you're making a PC game but you're advertising on I don't know. This is a really bad example, but you're advertising on television. It's going to be a pain for them to go and hit add to wish list. Whereas if they're watching a, a trailer on YouTube or if they're uh, they're, they're seeing this on a, a live stream or something, it's going to be easier for them to to go and hit that button. So that's one of the things I think you can think about. Um, but in general as well, there, there's. I'm, so i'm not a marketing expert by the way so so you know i, I can i can't speak too much to the exact value of all of these things but i think there's been a shift away from your more traditional kind of paid advertisements into building partnerships with creatives uh, and i'm sure you guys see this um within your field as well where actually collaborating with somebody who has a, a genuine interest and also has an audience giving them a taste of of a game and, and letting them try it out is uh, is going to be far more appealing to people than paying someone who isn't interested in your game to pretend to be interested on stream for an hour and then you know it's not really gonna end anywhere so it goes back to finding your audience and finding your audience within the space that actually has their own audience to to then transfer that to Mm, yeah Um, that's kind of how i would think about it at, at least
0: yeah it's really it's really an interesting area it's something that we're actually looking at in more detail on our side of things obviously as you know we're in the the voice performance voice casting space and it's one of those things kind of going forward the question is you know will voice actors actually become more valuable to the marketing team than they are to the production or the creative team um you know thinking about you know, if, if 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 i was a voice actor i'd probably be focusing right now on building a personal brand and building my own audience around that so you look at some of the titles we've worked on with you we've had you know people like Troy Baker we had Ron Perlman cast in one of the first titles we collaborated with you on and it's kind of a question of you know you know can can voice actors can you tap into their their own audience you know their fans who'll come along on that journey with them and you know you can have them doing additional content on tiktok and things like that
1: i think that's spot on because that's the challenge you're having in games as well you know if, if you can um, if you can make a reputation for yourself and if you can build your own brand first then each product that you put out each, each game, each project, you know, whatever it is you're doing is going to be a little bit less risk because at least you have that pre-existing audience that follows you wherever you go. And so there's 100%. You know, when we cast uh, Troy Baker, when we cast Ron Perlman or, or a number of actors that, that we collaborated on um, together with you guys, there is absolutely an angle of, well, here's a fantastic actor who also has an audience. They've got a fan base that, that wants to see their latest thing. It's a no-brainer. And, and if you, if you cast someone who's an amazing actor, but they don't have that, you're getting a fantastic performance and and your game is going to be better for it or whatever other project you're building, but you are not getting that bonus. And I think, I think that's something that, you know, we, we see this with um, an example who, who, who I've worked with personally is a, is a gentleman called uh, Oscar who made uh, a game called Bad North and then later a, a, a toy called Townscaper. and. When we were making Bad North together, he already had a little bit of a reputation within the development space. He was doing uh, doing some really interesting things on on the programming and art side that were drawing a crowd. You know, that they, they wanted to learn more about how he was doing these things, and uh, that audience grew. And then by the time we released Bad North, there was already a a fan base that were curious to see this thing that he'd been sharing on his channels as an actual game. And by the time he made Townscaper, I think uh, if I remember, his audience had gone from just in terms of followers, maybe 10,000 to like 100,000. And so when he shipped that, he was able to do this by himself. He, he, he didn't need a publisher at that time, you know, to, to put the, the the Townscaper project into early access and charge for it because he had such a strong brand by himself. And um, that, that's phenomenal. And I think, you know, if, if you look at voice acting, I can imagine certainly it's also an area, same as video games, where it's actually easier for people now to get into it than it was just 10, 15 years ago. And so again, with the platformer analogy, like if if I can build a platformer game this weekend... Whereas that used to take two years for someone to build, you know, two decades ago. Um, same thing with voice acting. You know, you don't need to go down to the to an actual studio and record with high-end gear because you can buy your uh, your SM7 and, and your little, uh, your Fethead and whatever it else is you need. And you can have that at home and get your little cupboard isolated. And now you're an actor, right? It's not that simple. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> There's a lot that goes into acting, but the technical hurdles are, are much lower and so now there's more competition. So what is the thing that you can do that makes you stick out? And I think that's a brilliant point that you're making up. Building your own brand is uh, is a really good way to stick out now. And um, that's it's just not going to get easier with the advent of, of AI and so on. So I mean, yeah. I'd love to hear how, how you guys are thinking about that, by the way, if I can totally derail the conversation.
0: Yeah, of course, yeah. I think it's an interesting thing, you know, with voice acting in particular and and how AI potentially threatens that. The way I look at it is like a pyramid, you know. So at the bottom of that pyramid, you have voice actors who place all their own unique value in their actual voice. And that's obviously, you know, the main area of threat with, with AI. You know, you could sample a voice and then regenerate it, recreate it very easily. And I think in the middle of that pyramid, you have actors who place not just their value on their voice but also on their ability to perform you know their ability to interpret a character to take direction um you know the ones who are reinvesting in in their acting skills effectively and then at the top of that pyramid you have the kind of minority who are who are you know placing value on both of those things but also see the value of you know as we previously said building a personal brand building their own audience um much in the way that you know an on-screen actor would do um and and in other words you know being able to bring something else to the table something that an ai can't provide and that's you know um, additional marketing uh, additional value um and so that's you know I, i think that's you know as a voice production company I think we have a responsibility to you know work with voice actors to you know help them look at things like that and I'm not saying that we only cast actors based on you know their social media following or anything like that because that's that's definitely not true what I am saying though is can we look at ways where we can be innovative and creative in in how we cast a project you know can we bring in one or two you know uh people that you know bring something different or we have a unique angle you know for example obviously we worked with uh young Yi in one of your projects who was a youtuber turned voice actor um and you know youtuber in the game space with a million plus followers you know so that was you know that's kind of like a a unique way of, of adding additional value um, you know, to a project. And and that's kind of how I see it, you know, with, with AI and voice acting. I think we need to look at how we bring fresh value, how we bring new value beyond just effectively doing the job.
1: I think it's a good way to look at it. Yeah. It it makes you wonder as well, the 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 sort of solo projects that get access to something like this. Are they going to end up making their first game with artificial voices, find success and then for their second game, when when they can actually afford it, are they going to reach out to, to a company like Big Mouth and say, hey, I want real actors now because... There's nothing like a real performance, right? Like that's the optimistic take at least. Uh, And and I would hope that that ends up being true, right? Because um, it'd be a real shame if every game we're playing is just artificial 10 years from now. But um, I think that's a clever way of of looking at it as well in the short term. And and I agree. I mean, there is a a responsibility there to to prepare the the folks you're collaborating with for the changes that are coming with any new tool like that. So cool. Interesting.
0: I want to ask you then about the growth of Raw Fury. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, when you joined the company, there was nine people and very quickly it's grown to, you know, over 100. What do you think is responsible for that? Uh, what makes Raw Fury Games so unique that has led to that that growth? It's
1: an excellent question because, you know, back when I joined, one of the things that, that Raw Fury was quite proud of was this... Um, I guess you could say an open-minded portfolio strategy. So not locking into genres, not kind of focusing on, on just particular styles, but but more so in the early days, I think one of the reasons a lot of those games had uh, more of a retro style, it, it came down to budgets, came down to working with small teams and leaning on pixel art or stylized graphics and so on tends to be easier when you have a small team. And then when you tend to add more and more people and work on larger projects, the visual diversity tends to change significantly. And you know everything from kind of Sable to Prospera versus something like Call of the Sea, uh, that they all look fundamentally different or, or friends versus friends, which which we just shipped and, and worked with you guys on plenty. So uh, super fun and, and just diverse portfolio I think is something that um, that certainly happened over the years but it all started with that that mentality of we're not just going to sign particular kinds of games we're going to find magic wherever that is and, and we're going to be open to it and, and i think in some ways that that obviously causes challenges when it comes to how do you market games how do you build an audience and so on like the the fundamental flaw of a very broad portfolio is who is Raw Fury. I mean, what is the identity of this publisher if, if the games are so different? And um, that's that's been a real challenge, I think, in, in, in making sure that you know the, the audience that likes some of the Raw Fury titles, that you can identify what are the other ones that they may be interested in. And so that's something that's, that's been discussed quite a bit. But um, I also think it's something that allows for conversations that you might not otherwise get if you're the kind of publisher you you know you're just doing strategy games or you're just building sort of uh roguelikes or pixel art games or first person shooters or whatever it is if you're closed in that way maybe the developer who's really like going back to the innovation they're building something and they're like man i have no idea if this is going to make any money but i wonder if anyone wants to partner up on it and i think about um a game called the longest road on earth which we actually made with um with brainwash gang the same developers who made friends versus friends and um for anyone who's, who's unfamiliar friends versus friends is a, is a first person shooter and uh, the longest road on earth was they kind of described it as it's not really a game it's it's sort of a an experience right and it's literally um kind of a platformer where you're walking from left to right sometimes right to left and that's the game that that's all the input there is really but the thing that makes it special is the music and so it's it's a completely handcrafted uh, soundtrack which sort of tells the story of these different characters that you get to, to spend some time with there's no dialogue, nobody speaks whatsoever in the game, aside from the singer who's, who's um, not really narrating, but but almost narrating an emotion. And so it's it's very experimental, it's, it's very uh, artistic and different, and it's something that it makes you smile, it makes you cry, you know, it's, it's all over the place. And, and it's just the soundtrack in particular really hits. But when they, um, when they approached us with it, they literally said, you know, we, we don't think this is gonna make any money. And we're looking at it and we're saying, well, uh, don't really care because this is the best damn thing ever, you know. Like uh, our our CEO Jonas, he, he he pinged me about this on a Friday night, and he said, you know, you got to check this thing out because it's really special. And it's kind of like playing a music video almost. And I spent most of my Friday evening just playing over and over again this short demo of it, and, and fell in love, you know. And I think that's that's maybe the the strength of having that kind of a, a broad and, and open approach to games is the person who's making something different is going to have the courage to reach out. And I think that's really cool. And and now, you know, that game, Longest Road on Earth, it wasn't a, a financial success, but it definitely was a success on the level of creating something that, that innovated and was different and resonated with people. That audience loved it. And we got to make another game with that developer, which was one of our fastest selling games ever. I mean, it, it did phenomenally when it came out um, just at the end of May and, and it's still going strong. And so if you think about the financial success as well as a publisher, one of the things you need to be doing is building relationships with really talented teams so that you get to continue working with them. It's about partnerships and so on. So if you look at The Longest Road as, as a way for us to build a partnership and you look at friends versus friends as here's what that partnership can do, well, then, then it's very successful.
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting actually, you know, talking about that approach to, you know, different ways of collaborating um, to innovate, I guess. And, you know, it's something we're actually seeing maybe more on the AAA side, but, you know, we're seeing a lot of studios uh, moving their game IP into podcasts and audio dramas and books, and, you know, um, just another way of, of accessing either a new audience or just expanding, expanding the, I guess, the universe of the IP for, for their existing audience, which, which I think is really, really exciting. Um, so in terms of trends, what trends are you seeing in the games industry at the moment? Um, and, you know, in, in particular, what trends are you seeing around the audience? What are the audience looking for at the moment?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's it's um it's an interesting time actually because if we just if we think back a little bit, I think some of the the key trends. Just so so we're we're on the same page uh, about the the sort of long term, or at least how I viewed it. Um, again, I came from the the Warcraft three era of games, so like MOBAs were born out of that modding scene originally, League of Legends, Dota, all that kind of stuff, and and there was a time when MOBAs was kind of the big deal. And then you had the the battle royale kind of space where everyone was doing a battle royale because PUBG came out and just blew everyone away. And um, I think it's been interesting since VR kind of came and, and went a little bit, and it sounds a little horrible, but I think a few years ago, everyone was predicting VR was going to be here by now, right? Like five years ago, people were saying, it's going to be here in, in a few years. And what we saw was a, a bunch of studios found around this idea of, of being the, I guess, the pioneers and and they wanted to be there at the start and and hoped that they would be one of those top 10 developers who could find success in VR. And a lot of them, unfortunately, are not here anymore. And um, so I think the VR space, you know, it's matured, but it still hasn't managed to kind of find its footing as, as a mainstream success. And you have to wonder, is it down to, um, to just the, the difficulties of, of building an experience within virtual reality where people are going to want to spend as many hours with a VR headset as they are in front of a computer and, or in front of a television or a Nintendo Switch or whatever. Uh, so I, I think VR is, is um, sadly, it's it's not really going to be the big thing anymore. At least that's how I feel. And um, I think instead, what's been really interesting to see, I, I go back to, to Vampire Survivors, right, or, or look at something like Among Us. Those are two fantastic examples of games that, are not really technically impressive, but they're doing something on the design side that people are hungry for. So Among Us, I think is, is a fantastic example of design innovation through proxy of social experiences. And I think people are hungry for that. You know, we, we had um, quite a long era where the MMOs were growing like World of Warcraft and RuneScape, if you remember that, or I was talking to someone about Habbo Hotel recently. There's all these virtual experiences where people would spend time with other people. And then I think the um, the growth of the market, where we see more and more games, the challenge has become: how does a game retain an audience? Because the audience keeps jumping to the next thing. And something like Among Us comes along, and it's it's something you can play with a small group of friends. And uh, Jackbox TV, if you remember those, like the same kind of concept. You know, just simple game you can play with some friends. I think we're seeing more of that. And I think Vampire Survivors is a good example of gamers kind of being. Not as sensitive towards graphics anymore. If I could just call it graphics, now, visual style, etc., is one thing, but I think players have got to the point where they're they're quite satiated in terms of the AAA games. They look stunning. They've, they've looked stunning for forever. Great, now give me something ugly because I just want it to be fun, you know. And and so, I, I think that the the worst thing that happened within AAA was the um the kind of formula developed to the point where you're pushing out basically the same game every year with a couple of alterations maybe every second year with larger alterations and i think players are numb to that by now they don't want the the sort of formula over and over again they want something that's going to make them feel something different or at least they want that in between the big releases and that's why i think games like this that come along and and they just they feel different they they obviously vampire is, is a bunch of it's a dopamine hit there's there's no way around that um it just gives you something that, that is going to stick, and so I think the scary thing actually about the current trend is whenever something comes out that finds a large amount of success, what happens is everybody tries to jump on the bandwagon and go, "Let's do that too," right? Uh, and um, I don't think that's working. You know, I think there's the the window for a trend is getting shorter because our attention spans are probably they're probably in the negative by now if if, uh, if we' we're, if we're going in that trend you know so it's hard to tell what the next thing is going to be and, and I think that's kind of the challenge you know is we're no longer in a place where you can afford to chase the trend. I think' we're, we're kind of in the space now where players are more hungry for for something new than they have been for quite a while and it's because of the amount of competition so uh, maybe it sounds silly but but I think you know you, you need to find a way to get ahead of that. And um, so, I, I guess it's if the question is what trend should I be following, I would say if the trend is already blown up, it's already too late. You know, you don't have time to turn something around now and still be relevant by the time it ships. So, if the question is, you know, what what technical trends are we seeing? Well, VR and AR are still spaces that there's a lot left to do. But you know, we saw Apple's new announcement with their new headset, and we see a lot of stuff going on in AR. Maybe there's room there, but I think ultimately. Uh, it's going to come down to to the ability to to find, especially design innovation. Now, I, I think that's the space that there's there's a lot of opportunity within. And going that way instead of chasing whatever seems to be cool at the time is is more essential now than maybe it was even just a few years ago.
0: And when you say design innovation, are you specifically mm. talking about new gameplay features or you know the mechanics of the game?
1: Yeah, largely, I would, I would say it's that, you know, just building something that feels different to play, um, that there's something going on that, that you haven't seen before or, or at least a unique spin on it. And that's, um, everyone has cool ideas, you know, but actually getting them made, that's that's the, the trick.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So going back now to the head of production side of things, one of the things that we are particularly keen to do in this Podcast is discuss the the pain points and problems um, that you know producers like yourself face on a project by project basis, with the hope of them being able to share those uh, problems and solutions with our audience. So, using I guess using our collaboration as a starting point, what were those initial problems that you needed solved when you came to us? And then kind of building out from there, you know, what are the sort of general problems and solutions that you face in your role?
1: Yeah, this is the one that keeps me up at night, you know, how (laughs) do you get to that point? Uh, I I would go back to to kind of... um, the fundamentals of the role of a producer, very briefly, and and anyone who's worked with me for any period of time is is tired of me talking about this. I promise. So, uh, <laughs> but but at the end of the day, you've got the the kind of project management triangle where where you're talking about your budget, your uh, your scope and your time, and then trying to find the uh, the way to balance those three uh, those three levers against a quality experience, right? So in essence, you're going to have a certain amount of cash, you're going to have a certain amount of time, and there's a game you're trying to build which consists of a number of features and and pieces of content that make up the whole. And your ability to navigate that space is going to be the difference between a high-quality product and something that didn't quite come together like you were hoping. Um, What that means is that in the beginning of a project, you may have a pretty clear picture of what you're trying to accomplish. But games are inherently complex because they're interactive experiences. So the way that a player chooses to interact with your game or the way that something actually ends up feeling when you implement it might be quite different from what you imagined it in the first place. And that's, that's a problem statement, right? That that's the kind of challenge you're going to run into. On the flip side of this, what sounds really cool on paper once implemented may also uncover things that you hadn't considered before as far as opportunities go so you may realize six months into development or two years into development Steve why didn't we why didn't we think of this feature from day one because it's it's the, now this is now the thing you know this is gonna make the game so much better and um, your flexibility in terms of a plan to foresee your challenges but also kind of be able to embrace opportunities, I think is critical. And, and so it's very, very tempting. And, and again, going back to the idea of the designer saying yes, and the producer saying no, you know, if, if you can find the balance at the start where you're building something for two years, don't fill those two years with work from the start, you know, fill um, maybe one year or maybe a year and three months. And, and then you have that last period for the unforeseen things, the things that are impossible to plan for from day one because you haven't even thought about them yet and you've no way to test them yet uh, i think that's really really essential when you're building something like a video game and um, if you consider then finding this this compromise between changing the scope and and not delaying your game endlessly and so on those are the business realities that, that you're going to be facing so um in some cases you're in a position where you might be able to throw more money at the problem, and that's great. You know, then you you might um, you might get away from the issue that you weren't able to embrace a new opportunity. Uh, if you want to add more features to the game in the middle of development, then you can afford to spend more money to do that. Cool. But then consider that if your team works on the same thing for five, six, seven years. They may lose the, the passion and the excitement that they had from the start, and they, they may end up getting sidetracked. So again, there, there's a compromise where just because you're throwing money to solve one problem doesn't necessarily mean that doesn't solve all your problems and isn't creating a new problem. So um, a lot of the times as, as producers, we have to really think about the, the bigger picture and how... Every feature that we're building and, and every decision we're making that's going to impact the uh, you know the quote unquote triangle, which I like to call the eternal struggle, uh, you got to think about how that's going to impact the team and how it's going to impact the, the the final results. And and hey, honestly, if you go back to your question about trends and so on, if you're building a game that is chasing a trend or, or that you think has kind of a limited window of opportunity, well, then it's going to be more sensitive to changes. So something to consider as well. Um, there are other layers of this as well, which which come down to When you're marketing a game um there are certain activities that are are time locked so you know if you're doing a big uh, presentation at e3 or or at gamescom or whatever it is well you you can't really miss that because gamescom is not going to be pushed it's going to happen in august every year and that's how it is so you've got the the sort of world around you that is completely uh, insensitive to the realities of your project um so, so there are a lot of things to consider and i mean those are, are are some of the big ones but then I think there there are more specific things as well and I'll give you an example which which goes back to, to our collaboration actually on friends versus friends and this is the the most recent game that that I was involved with so it's uh, it's fresh in mind and I'm talking about it a lot but, but it's a lovely game check it out um, if um if I explained to you that when we started working on this game it was quite ugly it might actually surprise you because it's it's a really cool and stylish and, and gorgeous game now but when we started, the the characters and everything were were not exactly stunning. And um, once they started to to come alive and, and take shape, my immediate feeling was, I want to know who this is. It went from like I don't really want to look at this to I want to know this character. Like, what's their name? What's their favorite food? Like, who are they as a person? And and I really. Um, I did something that's unusual, maybe from, from how I described the producer. Uh, I pushed a lot on, on that side of things that, that the creative team go back and consider this. And, and so in essence, I, I pushed for us to alter the scope in a certain direction because I saw an opportunity for it. And as we started to develop out these characters more, you know, we, we gave them names, we, we, uh, we brought in a, a writer, uh, Shirley, who, who was fantastic and then worked with us to really bring them alive. And I've started pushing the team. Like, I think we should consider giving them voices because now we have these characters that that feel real and, and that feel like someone you can connect to. And um, it's a great part of like building this world that we're creating, aside from just being a really cool first person shooter, this is a great way to, to bring it alive. And um, I'm almost ashamed to admit this, Steve, especially to you as, as an industry professional who's worked with fantastic writers and directors like Donald, who, who you know, I. Uh, I blocked Donald a little bit from this project at the beginning because I still wasn't sure. We still weren't sure, right? We, we wanted to try to add some voices. We were a little bit careful just to see what it would feel like. And so I ended up offering you know, to, to keep costs down because the the team wasn't sure that we, our budget was tight enough as it was, right? We we're, were trying to, to, to really be careful about things. But um, I offered, I'm gonna write the script for our first two characters. And and I'll I'll do the direction you know and then direction I, I say that term very lightly because I'm not a you know, I'm not a schooled voice director I, I've had the 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 luxury of getting to do direction for two projects in one way or another and so you know I and I getting to work with Donald really closely was a fantastic director on on, uh, on your side getting to see how he does that and I mean he's, he's phenomenal knows exactly what he's doing so getting to learn from that has been great and and it really helped in this case but. Getting to, um, to kind of write those first two characters, working with, with your crew on casting them and doing those first two sessions with, uh, with Estelle son and Adam Diggle, who, uh, who played um, the moose and um, uh, duck in that instance for the game. We, we got that done. We came back. We implemented it into the game. And I think at that point, everyone just kind of realized we have to do this. It just, it was too good to, to not go for fully and it clicked. And so again, when, when we're talking about from production, having the space to, to embrace an opportunity, that's kind of a good example of, of what that means. And, and, um, just having the time to, cause in other cases you're prototyping a system, you know, you, you think of a new feature and you go, let's spend two weeks building this and, and see how it feels. And maybe it's the wrong direction and then we throw it away and we go in, in a different direction. That's okay. But, um, if you have a plan that doesn't allow for anything like this honestly i think your game is going to suffer as a result and so i was really glad that we had the room to to be able to experiment with these kind of things in particular for that game and um i think everyone who who played the the final version were, were super happy with the voices and the characters and i think it's hard now to imagine what the game would have been without that and um that's a very you know voice specific example but i think almost every game you play that that's doing something magical, there's at least a system or, or a feature like that, which it probably wasn't planned from the start and it happened by accident. And, and I mean, I think, um, I'll give you a, a really random other example that I, that I love. Um, I was working at Fat Shark at, a, at a game called Vermintide and it's a, it's a long-standing now series of Warhammer games. Uh, and we, when we were doing the first one, it was um, just kind of left for dead inspired game. And you have all these enemies, these rat men. They're they're called Skaven, and you're 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 killing hordes of them, right, over and over again. And you got to make sure that if you're doing something ten thousand times, it has to feel satisfying, it has to feel fun and engaging every single time. And so there's a lot of very brutal um, you know, decapitations, and then there's a lot of blood and gore. I hope this is okay to talk about on the stream. Uh, <laughs> so so it's a bloody game, let's just say. And um, Michael, our our uh, our technical artist on the project, he at one point he came over to my desk and, and he said, "Come check this out." And then so we put up the game, and he's showing me this this thing he's done where you can sort of chop the head off an enemy, and I said, "That's that's crazy. That's super cool, you know." And 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 um, it has this sort of ragdoll animation, so it's moving around and it looks really lifelike. And then uh, I tried something, I sort of tried hitting the enemy again or something, and it wouldn't move. And I said. Uh, oh, is, is there any way we can you know make that also function in this scenario? And he goes, no, it's uh, sorry, it's impossible. We can't do that. I'm like, okay, that's a shame. And Two days later, he stops by my desk. He says, Liam, do you have five minutes? And, and he has it working, you know, because that's just how he was. He would take the challenge and he'd run with it. And and we had a couple of back and forth like that with the guy. And and I mean, he just um, he always would find a way to to go past whatever seemingly impossible blocker he had and uh, make something work anyway. And so. Um, that's also something i think you know if you're able to build a team where trying things out even though they might fail and um having that that creativity and that passion to to just experiment with things is is honestly felt when you when you play the final product because again a lot of the things that you see in a final game are things that somebody in the team decided one day i don't care if it costs me my weekend or, or i don't care if uh, if if i'm taking a big risk here but I think this is the right decision. And then us having that conversation and saying, yeah, let's try this out. And then ultimately, when the game comes out and you're reading the reviews, that's the thing that gets highlighted over and over again is that creative little thing that we never planned for, but it turned out to be the right decision in the end.
0: Yeah, 100%. And I guess it kind of goes back to that point uh, that games are made by Passionate gamers. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, th- this has been great, Liam. There's been so much, uh, so much great information and and, and valuable takeaways uh, from this conversation. Um, we're going to finish up by asking you this question: If you could be remembered for one thing, what would that be? So this can either be on career, personal, both. Um, it's up to you. So. Oh. throw that over to you
1: that's the hardest question of all honestly yeah i mean talking about production and everything that's easy but but when it comes to legacy that's forever hmm i think i think as as a leader or as a producer in general i think being somebody who was open to being challenged is is kind of the important thing for me and and i particularly you know i've spoken a lot about leading a team and so on. But, but what I find is that it's the individuals in the team that dare to, to kind of question things and dare to ask the question of like, why, do we, why are we doing this? Like, why does this process look like this? And for me as, as a, the, the receiving end and the person responsible for that process to look at that and go, yeah, I have no idea. Would you like to collaborate on improving this? Like Those are my favorite moments and, and the ones that get me excited and when I get to learn from somebody else. And so I guess um, if I had to be remembered for something, it would, it would probably be that, you know, being somebody who's, who's looking to collaborate and, and work together with people and, and is happy to be challenged. Uh, i'd like that and of course you know if if my uh if my career as a rock star ever takes off i'd love for that to be a big deal as well but so far uh, i haven't released any songs and uh i've yet to to become a rock star but but that would be cool <laughs> too as it's just a bonus um, yes
0: yeah. <laughs> a, nice little, a nice little added extra it would be cool <laughs> <laughs> um listen this has been great liam thank you so much thank you, Um you, we really appreciate you you taking the time today um, we we look forward to catching up with you again soon and yeah thanks again for, for giving up your time today it's been a pleasure cheers, thank you, thank it's been you. a pleasure so-